0: fertility podcast is here to help you understand more about your fertility and for the last eight years has published a lot of conversations with experts and people sharing their stories it's now going back to its roots giving you people's lived experiences once again to give you comfort in knowing there's a community of people who get it so you find commonality be inspired and know you're not alone started by me natalie silverman a former patient once i was pregnant after fertility treatment i later joined forces with kate davis an independent fertility nurse consultant who is now your host and here she is
1: hello how are you hope that if you're listening to this in may that you're enjoying all the lovely long bank holidays that we're having at the moment Got one left in May, which is lovely. I'm just really hoping for a bit better weather. That would be quite nice, wouldn't it? So we shall see. But there's quite a lot been going on this week for me, um, and there's quite a lot going on in the world of fertility as well at the moment. If you've had your ear to the ground, you'll have heard about a new treatment called mitochondrial donation treatment. And this is for individuals who are at really high risk of passing on serious mitochondrial diseases onto their offspring. And this is a real new treatment that's just come out and is is kind of in research form at the moment. Um, but it's fascinating. Um, and something to be honest, I'm trying to get my head around a little bit. But to kind of explain it briefly, mitochondria are present in almost all of our human cells including egg cells and they basically are the energy pack the battery pack of cells and for really good cell development we need to have good battery packs Um, so this mitochondrial donation treatment involves two techniques um, and they've been developed and approved by parliament and they're MST, which is maternal spindle transfer, and PNT, which is pronuclear transfer, and in both techniques, eggs or embryos are created using your own nuclear genetic material and healthy donated mitochondria. So, in to explain a bit more detail, in MST, your nuclear genetic material is removed from your eggs and transferred into donated eggs which have their own nuclear genetic material removed and then the, these eggs are then fertilized with sperm to create embryos. In PNT your eggs are fertilized with sperm in a lab first to create the embryos and then the genetic material within each embryo is transferred into embryos created using donated eggs and sperm from a sperm provider. And again, the genetic material has been removed from the donated eggs. So it's it's a little bit confusing um, and I need to spend a bit of time getting my head around it, but that's basically what it is. So if you want to find out more, do go and check the HFEA website and they've got a whole section on mitochondria donation treatment. So have a look at it. I'll put a link in the show notes so that you can follow that too. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. Currently, the only clinic that is doing this treatment is Newcastle Fertility Centre. So I'm hoping that we're going to get more information out from that as they continue with their research. Um, And you never know, we might be able to speak to somebody at a later date when they have got more information to tell us, but that would be great. So keep your ear to the ground and I will definitely um, let you know when I find out more. And that leads me on to a really lovely segue. And Natalie, you'd be proud of me for our next episode and our next guest, where we're talking to a former patient of mine, Zoe, and she's talking about her don- donor conception following cancer treatment and chemotherapy that she had as a child. So let's get right into it and welcome Zoe to the podcast. Hi, Zoe. Welcome to the Fertility Podcast. Hello, how are you? I'm really good. Thank you so much for joining me. It's so lovely to see you and to see you looking radiant and absolutely beautiful after not long ago having a boy. Two weeks. Two, Two weeks. weeks. <laughs> oh my god. To be honest, I half expected you to to message me and say, Kate, can we possibly rearrange? I'm all a bit in baby color right now.
2: <laughs> no, I'm hoping the baby brain's not gonna let me down. <laughs> I've got some notes. <laughs> Oh, no,
1: I'm sure it won't. I'm sure it won't. Um, obviously, we've chatted a fair bit over the last few months, really. Um, and and the reason why I wanted to have you as a guest on the podcast is that your story is inspirational. You've not ever stood back and taken no for an answer. And you are the absolute image of the of the person that I try to empower my patients to be, that person who's able to advocate for themselves and not take no for an answer and and literally take ownership of their fertility journey so why I wanted to chat with you is to for you to have the opportunity to talk about your story talk about the things that you did and in the hope that then we can empower other women to really feel that they can also
2: advocate for themselves and to be to feel empowered on their fertility journey thank you I I've um I feel I've become a gynecologist over the last three four years with the amount of reading I've done but yeah that's totally where I've aimed for to be empowered and to take ownership
1: yeah and I always talk about the fact that you actually do have to become your own fertility advocate because sadly nobody else is going to do that for you so it's something that you have to learn and And the crucial things are immersing yourself with as much information, but most importantly the right type of information, not Dr. Google, and then helping you to make then the right decisions. Absolutely. But before we kind of come to that and how you kind of went on this quest to become empowered and knowledgeable, tell us a little bit about your fertility journey and kind of where it started up to where you
2: are now, I guess. Yeah, sure. So when I was 15, I was diagnosed with um, childhood cancer, which was um, lymphoma. The diagnosis took um, nearly a year to make, really. I was... um, fogged off by a GP and stuff when I said I've got this huge lump and you know, I was walking around like the elephant lady um with a massive lump in my neck before they took me seriously. And um because also it's a it's a criteria that you tend to be like a sixty year old man that's smoking drunk all the life. So for a fifteen year old healthy girl it wasn't really the norm. They didn't overly know how to treat me. So they just um blasted me with chemo with a load of quite quite hard drugs that they don't use nowadays. I mean obviously it changed, you know, it saved my life and stuff. But um, that resulted in me becoming infertile. I then had a second lot of cancer when I was 18, where I was put on experimental treatment. I was one of about four in the world, I think. So I was sent to like professors and um, the biopsy slides were sent across Europe and stuff because I was quite an unusual case. And so they put me on experimental treatment, which, um, further confirmed my infertility really. I do consider myself very lucky with that because I was given the option of you know do you want to live and be infertile or do you want to die which for me was a really easy option and also that gave me many many years to get my head round the infertility. So when I met my now husband, um, I think it was like date one or something, where I literally said, Oh, you know, if you're looking for a womb, I'm not gonna be able to provide well, I can provide a womb, but I can't provide any eggs to go in it. And um wow. he kind of ran to his mum and said, What do I do with this? You know, I don't think there's a bigger turn off for a bloke. And his mum, thankfully, um, just said she's obviously very genuine. Um, and you know, I think it's really important to have that discussion early doors. And I think that's what's helped us stay strong and stuff, you know, the openness. And that's why I do consider myself very lucky, because I was able to do that. And it's not been, you know, many years of trying as such. Um So,
1: I mean, that must be so difficult to know when to start having those conversations in a relationship. Yeah. Um, Say hey, that could that could send somebody running for the hills. Or not? I suppose it, you just don't know, do you, how they're going to take it? No,
2: absolutely. And equally, um, I was so lucky with my husband because um, he'd worked in schools a lot and um, obviously seen less fortunate children. And so he was actually a really big candidate for adoption. He And he said, do you know what, I'd, I've always wanted to adopt anyway. And I said, well, please, can we try this? Because I'd really like to be pregnant um, and carry a baby. Um, I hadn't quite got to the adoption, the headspace for adoption yet. I hadn't ruled it out, but I hadn't quite got there yet. And um, so we had that discussion and... um, You know, it's it's been a journey we've got we've done together. Luckily, as he'll never, never miss of telling me he's grade A and, you know, he's got zero problems. He's been through every test there is and he's absolutely wonderful. So, you know, he got got two thumbs up from the doctor, which he was delighted about after after providing his sample. And so, um, you know, he's been absolutely fine, which has probably helped our journey a lot. But equally I think humour's helped it, you know. Um there's a there's a book, um, I think the lady was on the one of the podcasts previously actually, um, an American lady that ended up having triplets and she wrote this book called Laughing's Conceivable or something. And um really like small book, but they basically her and her partner used to play like waiting room bingo and things like that of what they saw. And I do think you have to find the humour in these things, definitely.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's, I always talk about, you know, putting the joy back into your life so it's not all consuming about um, trying to conceive and, and the fertility side of it. And often it's quite difficult to see the humour in it and to and to find things when you're anxious and and worried but it's so important if you can do that and I love the idea of waiting room bingo
2: (laughs) I think they did like waiting room bingo and or the olympics or something and they like gave people you know characters and medals for what they'd done and everything so yeah however you can find it really
1: absolutely so then tell us then kind of you obviously decided that's the route you wanted to go down so what happened
0: then
2: yeah so um I was kind of clear that it was donor eggs when we first got together or like you know um, a few years after we went to see a UK fertility consultant quite early we weren't ready to have children there but I just wanted to know if there's anything I should be doing proactively you know over the next year or so he turned around and said I can have you pregnant in six weeks to which we were like oh we're not ready yet um no worries and he scanned me and he said yeah there's absolutely nothing in your ovaries so donor eggs is the route you should go down so he recommended either Spain or Cyprus I wanted an anonymous donor and the anonymity laws are different in Spain and Cyprus um and also I think the donors are more plentiful over there compared to the UK um I do believe the treatment's very different um and so I opted for Spain um I've spent a lot of time in Spain as a youngster I kind of can get by in the language and stuff so I was very comfortable there and um as the Spanish it seemed very right
0: for you yeah as a choice yeah
2: and as the Spanish doctors pointed out they were like you're not going to be hard to match to a Spanish person are you and I was like no shouldn't be so um So we chose Spain and um, I went for when we were then ready, we went back to the English consultant and um, said to him, like, you know, we'd like to start the process. And I always remember leaving his office um, for like the final time before I was going to go to Spain. And he shook my hands and he said, well, I'll next see you for a scan. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, cool. Thank you. And. In my mind then, like, if I can take myself back, I was just so sure it was going to be like going to the supermarket and buying and buying a product or, you know, just collecting something. I mean, I thought, oh, okay, cool, here we go. We're going to fly to Spain, get the embryo popped in, pregnancy. It'll be born at this time. Cool, cool, cool. And, and that was it. And when it, it first didn't work like you really could have knocked me over with a feather. I, I was so shocked it was untrue, so shocked.
1: And I think there's there's that perception, isn't there, Zoe, that IVF will fix it. Yeah. And I think there's also the perception that you'll have a cycle of IVF and it'll work, the first cycle will work. Absolutely. And I think it's so important to view IVF as a course of treatment yeah. and that you go into it not expecting necessarily the first time to work, but for your body to understand more about what's going on, for your doctors to learn more from you, that then in subsequent cycles, your success rates are going to go up. And I really feel that's important to get across that the longer we feel that IVF first cycle is gonna be the, the start of this new creation, this new life, then that potentially is dangerous and, and, and harming to our emotional health. Yeah. Whereas to view it as a course is, is probably a healthier way. To yeah
2: I mean I was talking to my mum this morning and um like you know about what we're going to discuss and I just said if I'd have known then what I know now like wow how different it would have been and as I say it was it was such a shock for me it was just the biggest I just I really didn't even conceive it could happen especially with donor eggs um you know great sperm you know I was considered a banker um the from my consultant you know I was fit I was healthy my BMI is fine I don't smoke I've never smoked I don't drink I've never done drugs you know um literally the only problem is I'd got no eggs that was the only problem so you get an egg you stick it in jobs are good em, as far as they were concerned and um yeah. they really yeah. were sure of this but no that didn't work
1: <laughs> so then you went on and you had, well, how well, many, how many rounds of IVF did you end up having? In the
2: so end? the total to get to the two babies that we've got now is um, 11 embryos, um, basically. So what happened was the, the first one didn't work, the second one didn't work either. And then on the third one, they put two embryos in. Um, one was a mosaic though, but then that didn't work. We then took loads of um you know we were looking at the books and seeing what we could do differently we did the emma's test the alice test the hysteroscopy the biopsy everything we could do they couldn't find anything at all and um so we got a new donor and this is something that is maybe worth noting that the difference between the spanish and the english is um quite marked And I'm used to the Spanish because, as I say, I've spent a lot of time over there and I I understand them. My husband, not so much. And so we got this new donor. Um, There wasn't a huge amount of embryos and um, we were at Liverpool ready to board the plane. We were literally on the bottom of the steps. And um, I said to my husband, I said, oh, my phone's vibrating and got it out. And I said, oh, it's Spain. I said we'll be there in a couple of hours and he said no no get it and so I said oh, okay so I answered it and it was a receptionist from Spain and she said hello all the embryos are dead so please cancel your plane and oh my I was like okay and I don't know whether she thought we'd hired a jet which obviously we hadn't the plane wasn't going to be cancelled um so I kind of yeah. turned to my husband and said what do you want to do and he was like there's no point in going we were only going for a short overnight anyway and um we had to like be escorted back through the airport um like some naughty children that have been chucked off a flight and we got interviewed mm-hmm. and they said you know why aren't you getting on the plane and um, my husband was like you know read and um and I just went oh the meeting's been cancelled thank you and just marched on through because I just thought you've got to put your game face on and carry on back and we just got back and I was just like I can't even believe this has
1: happened so when you say the difference between the Spanish and the English you mean like the culture and kind of the way that they say things perhaps not giving a notice yeah
2: absolutely and I think that really has to be taken into account I'm I'm on a group um several groups on Facebook and you see people like saying you know the Spanish aren't replying quick enough they're not responding to my emails they've said this they've said that and in truth none of it's personal it's it's literally just their culture and I think one of the things is to get on board with that culture um I know after we'd had our first, um, child and we were going for the second one, um, the consultant who, who I do actually, I, I adore, you know, I can't say a bad word about him. One of the things he did say was, um, if I were you, I'd save your money and take your daughter to Disneyland because, you know, it's, it's tough. Mm-hmm. And How many times have I heard? That? <laughs> I've heard it so much Yeah. And I think, I think you've got to, um, not take no notice of these things because obviously it's very difficult to do but you you've got to really put them in a bucket and go that's that's just the way they are they don't mean any malice by it
1: so when we have chatted before one of the things that you struck me um and that I wrote down was not yielding to the doctors so tell us a bit more about what you mean by that and how you didn't yield to the doctors. yeah of
2: course so um I had I don't know whether it is an unusual situation or not but I had the situation where I had a UK consultant and a Spanish consultant and um they they had different that's quite normal yeah they had different views on things and so after like the first the first embryo didn't work the UK consultant was saying oh you know put yourself on steroids and then the Spanish consultant was like oh no it doesn't need steroids it can just carry on and then The UK consultant was saying um, we've had really good um, results using Lubion instead of Cyclogest, which is obviously an injectable um, progesterone instead of a pessary, whereas the Spanish one was going, oh, there's no published papers about it. There's no medical evidence. And I I think a lot of the time you have to read, 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 and then figure it out for yourself. So You've got to go, well, am I going to feel more confident? Is it going to do me any harm? You know, is it going to do the baby any harm? And you you've really got to take a punt on it. So one of the things that I looked at but didn't do was um like the IVIG and the inter intralipids and things like that. And I'd, I spoke to both consultants and they just said, look, the evidence isn't there. We've maybe tried it once or it's very expensive or you need to be careful now you're a mother because this could this could happen. And, you know, I think you have to have a really open um, and honest conversation with your consultants and um, you need to be armed with all of the evidence, all of your beliefs as to why it should work um you need to have a hugely open mind and not take things to heart if they do say no I do think a lot of this is um mental as well I mean I've tried psychologists and hypnotists and things like that I've tried all of these things um acupuncture the whole lot so lots of holistic things as well but I do think one of the things that is really key is that you're going into this in your best belief. You you believe that this is the right treatment for you. If you go into it thinking, well, they've not listened to me about these these drugs or this medication or whatever, then you're going into it with a negative mindset and you're going into it with doubts.
1: That's such good such good advice, Zoe. It really is. And um I think it it's all about taking that responsibility to fight for what you want and doing the research to back it up. And when you mentioned about IVF add-ons, and you're absolutely correct in what you're saying, that you know there's not always the evidence to, to necessarily show that they're effective. But if it's something that you feel you want to try, it's important to have that open and honest conversation with your consultant about what is the evidence. And it might be that there isn't evidence, but they might have local evidence from their clinic yep. that they may be able to share with you. But also most importantly, what are the risks associated? And only then can you make an informed decision. Whether or not you accept those IVF add-ons, that's completely down to the two of you as a couple. But actually having that open and honest conversation and asking about the benefits versus the risks can only help you in making decisions. It's so important. Yeah,
2: and I did I did feel a pressure, especially um at the beginning from the Spanish team that you know what they know works and to actually just carry on like this and to just keep going and keep going but my um you know the mathematician and the um logistical brain that I've got I was like no way because it's you know it's the definition of insanity isn't it just trying the same thing over and over and expecting a different result and um absolutely yeah so I was determined to try try different things and um at one stage I was recommended to go and see a chinese doctor who um gave me herbs and things like this a whole method of chinese herbs she's had wonderful results with um various fertility patients and you know but <laughs> you have to be realistic about this thing. Is there going to be evidence for Chinese herbs? No, because no clinical trials will be done. No pharma company is going to back a herbal treatment because that's not going to line their pockets. And, um, you know, they're the ones that do the clinical trials. They're the ones that get the results. And I think one of the really, I mean, I work in healthcare anyway, so I'm probably more exposed to these things. But I think one of the really key things to know is, you're never going to get solid evidence. I mean, you as um, you know, as a patient, are you going to put yourself forward for um experimental treatments that could, you know, potentially harm you or your baby or stuff? Because I, I won't even take paracetamol when I'm pregnant. So, you know, um there's there's no evidence of anything. And also it's um it's classed like they can't do clinical trials on um pregnant ladies. Um no, it's unethical.
1: It's so difficult, isn't it? Because it's getting that balance. If you think that back in, what, 40, I don't know, 44 years or so ago, when Louise Brown was the first test tube baby born, right? That was experimental. IVF was experimental. A lot of IVF to this day is experimental. And without that ability to experiment, we would never be where we are now when it comes to fertility treatments, you know we've advanced so much in forty four. And I'm, I'm apologies, apologies, Louise, if I'm adding any extra <laughs> onto you. Maybe That's About right, I think. But had we, you know, had we not taken the ability within medicine to to try these things, we would not be where we are. So it is all about getting that balance, just making that decision for yourself, knowing the risks and not wanting as you say to do anything that's going to be harmful to you or to potentially your baby going forward um it's a really hard to hard to navigate that isn't it's it it's
2: really hard and especially when you're dealing with such intelligent um successful consultants that have made it to the top of the game um you know they they know they know so much like i'm sure they've forgotten more than i'll ever know but i do think there's a huge onus to take control on yourself. So, um, I read your favorite book. Um, you know, it's, it's, um, it starts with the egg, um, which can I put a little caveat on? It's not. (laughs) Um, and you know, took it with a huge pinch of salt at the end of the day. Um, there were some things that were just absolutely impossible to do, but there were some things that I thought, you know what, I can get on board with that. And it was really simple. Like, um, getting a metal water bottle over a plastic one and I know that sounds really really silly but I drink filtered water through a metal bottle has that helped me get pregnant mm. not sure but do you know what it made me feel like I was well, doing something it made me you're feel- doing something yeah, yeah.
1: It- you're taking you're taking control you're feeling empowered you're advocating yourself for doing all those things I always feel that it's not one piece of the missing puzzle but there's lots of different pieces that have to be slotted in in the right way to make a success and if that means that you're looking at toxins in your home and what you are putting into your body or putting onto your skin that's one piece of the puzzle that's so important absolutely so I agree with you it's just those little things I think the reason why I Fight. a bit like you said with it starts with the egg there are there are some some really good advice in there but there's also too much and it's too overwhelming and I don't think it's right for everybody to do all of those things but picking cherry picking I think it's so important I always say to people actually even when they come and, and I see them from consultation I'm going to be telling you things some of those things might be different to what your acupuncturist is saying but you cherry pick what you need from all of us
2: yeah you've got to do what's right for you and as I say like you know I changed my shampoo and deodorant um did this make a difference? Who knows? Was it going to harm me? No. um, You know, and it was fine. And those kind of things, I think, you know, are going to empower you and make you feel as though you're doing something. Cause I think a lot of this journey is the helplessness, the sitting, the waiting, the just feeling like you can't make any changes. Whereas you, you really can. And you know, I, before this um, second pregnancy, i i ate the same thing every day for nine months can't touch the stuff now but um i it. so i had a tray um which i put into the oven so it was roasted because warming is meant to be better rather than eating it of a salad and it was tomatoes so red um for your blood red peppers for your blood beetroot for your blood um mm-hmm. sauerkraut for the gut health, avocado and and fish, and I ate that every day for lunch. Every single day for lunch. And as I say, you um, no yeah, no, no wonder I can't. And you know, a bit of bed of kefir and kimchi thrown in um now and then and you know I, I change my supplements. So you know I was taking things like royal jelly and um things like that. And As I say, it's a a huge balance of, you know, are they going to harm you? Are they going to make you pregnant? Probably not, if I'm really honest. And is the consultant going to advise this to you? No, of course they're not, because they've not got a paper in front of them that tells you, you know, to mm-hmm. um, to put CoQ10 into the, into the supplement regime and that will 100% make you pregnant. Of course it won't. And as I say, you've not got the pharmacos backing for supplements, so you're not going to have clinical trials on it. You're not going to have proof. But if mm-hmm. they make you feel better, they make you feel empowered, you do believe in the science That's behind it. it, then really go for it and keep changing those things.
1: That's brilliant, Zoe. Thank you, because like I said at the beginning, it's all about feeling empowered and taking that responsibility to advocate for yourself. If there's one thing that you could say that you wish you'd known way back then that you now know, which you wish you could have done then to make a difference, what one thing would that be? So
2: one of the huge things in Spain that I didn't realise that I obviously do now is that once a donor, whether they're male or female, has produced six live births they're then taken off the donor register and they're not allowed to donate anymore now I believe in England they protect a donor so that if they want to have further siblings full siblings they can do that Um, in Spain they don't do that so um, when it came to having a new donor for our second child um, we weren't able to go back to the original donor um, which (laughs) you know i've i've made peace with i think it's fine they're kind of two-thirds siblings rather than half siblings because i do believe a lot in epigenetics um which is a whole whole new podcast i'm sure um i definitely do one on epigenetics
1: good point um
2: and so i do believe they're kind of more siblings and as i say this the the new baby looks identical to um how the toddler looks um so it is good but I do wish I'd known that and a lot of the things especially in Spain is really it's assumed knowledge they go oh well yes this happens didn't you know well no I didn't Spain I didn't know that because no one told me and you know so that's one of the things that I think you need to be really careful of and as I say just don't go into it blindly thinking you're going to going to the shop and just picking something up because if I if I knew now, like, I mean, you know, the drugs I've introduced, the changes I've made, um, everything, whether they would have made the difference, I don't know. But as I say, when I went into the sibling round, I thought, oh, I've done this once. This is fine. I'll just follow the same protocol. And, you know, here we go. Well, no, it wasn't. Your body's changed. You know, Um, I started after my first baby, I started getting huge skin reactions. I've never had skin reactions in my life. You know your hormones are changing, your body's depleted. You really have to treat every single one as a brand new pregnancy, and you have to look at you know the especially things like thyroxine. Um, that's you know really a really um, controversial one because the GPS won't give you thyroxine if you if your TSH isn't above five. However, it needs to be two or below ideally for pregnancy. So that's another one, but. Is there any evidence, not huge evidence? You know, it's one of them.
1: Thank you, Zoe. That has been amazing. <laughs> I'm absolutely sure that people are going to feel massively empowered and really want to take on that responsibility and their ownership for their fertility journey after listening to you. So thank you so much. And thank you for being a guest on the fertility podcast.
2: Oh, thank you for having
1: me. So I really hope that you found the episode and the chat with Zoe really interesting. And I would love that this has made you feel a little bit happier, perhaps to take ownership of your fertility journey and give you the confidence to be your own fertility advocate, because I think Zoe really illustrates beautifully how she was absolutely able to do that. It's not easy. It's really not easy to do, but I think it does make a significant difference to your fertility journey. So I hope that's been useful. I have to say what I've been completely and utterly overwhelmed with and perhaps a little bit part of me has found it a bit unexpected was how willing you all are to share your stories with me and the podcast. And I, I thank you so much for that because I know it's not easy to talk about whatever you're going through. But what I'm finding, this is what my guests have been telling me, is they're finding it so cathartic to actually be able to talk, to be able to share their experience and maybe in some ways pay it forward a little bit. And I think that's incredible. And I've been overwhelmed by your willingness to share whether whether or not you've been a previous patient of mine or whether you've just got in touch to say you'd like to talk. So in that same token, if you'd like to talk, I would love to hear from you. Please get in touch. You can email me on kate at yourfertilityjourney.com. But anyway, please get in touch. And we'll be back in two weeks with a returning guest to the podcast. So we'll see you then. And before I go, if you're listening to this in May, then you might want to know that the Fertility Show, the annual Fertility Show, is back on the 20th and 21st of May. So in a week and a half. Um, and the show is always held at Olympia in London and it's a great place to go if you're kind of thinking about looking at clinic options or wanting to find other resources to support your opportunity journey then it's definitely worth a visit but if you are popping along then do come and find me I'm going to be there for the whole weekend and I'm going to be helping out on the stand with the lovely people from OviSense. so come along and say hi um, be lovely to meet you and yeah hopefully we'll see you there
0: Please do rate and review the podcast as it's brilliant for other people to know what you think. Even just hitting follow or subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast really helps other people know it's worth a listen. Also follow Kate on her Insta, which is Your Fertility Nurse. And if you'd like to book in a consultation with Kate to understand more about your fertility and reproductive health, visit yourfertilityjourney.com.